Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 14 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 24. Barb is back at the head of the group this week. She seems rejuvenated, and the meeting goes according to her plan, as she asserts her will over the proceedings. It's nice. Brian appears to be back to his jovial self as well. But there are cracks in his facade, like he's just playing a role. I know how that goes. There are no new members, so no sharing of stories, just affirmations and reminiscences. As the meeting is winding down, I catch old Harold, or should I say Harry the Shark Finn, looking at me. I can't remember any time he's looked at anyone except for when he encouraged us to celebrate the death of Nick's killer and allow ourselves to accept the relief it brought. This time he's not speaking, just looking at me inquisitively. Not that I'm not interesting to look at. I still have a scab on my nose and bandages on my hands. But he doesn't seem to be curious about my injuries. He's looking deeper than that. He notices me matching his stare, and we lock eyes for a moment. I imagine I can see the cold-blooded killer he used to be under the emotionally beaten exterior he's worn for more than two decades. Is the shark still in there? I remember what Eddie had told me about how old Harold had exacted his revenge on the man responsible for killing his son's family. Yet he was still damaged, empty, sitting in the corner listening to people relive the horror of losing their own children and the ongoing pain of life without them. I'm the one who breaks eye contact, shifting my focus to the young woman relating how difficult it has been for her remaining children after the oldest one died of a neuromuscular disease. I look back and he's still staring at me, but it's not accusatory or pitying, or annoyed. It's like he's trying to send me a mental message, shouting at me with his eyes. But I can't hear what he's trying to tell me. I can't make out the words. What are you trying to say? He just nods, as if he's already told me the answer. Are you all right? Rebecca whispers in my ear. I turn to her and realize that I've been staring at Harold longer than I thought I was. The others are breaking up into the post-sharing gatherings around the coffee and cookies. I'm fine, I tell her, offering a reassuring pat on her hand. I'm going to talk to Amy. Okay. She gives my arm a squeeze, smiles, and gets up to make her way toward the corner Amy has staked out with a cup of coffee cradled in her hands. I look back to old Harold, but he's gone. I look around, catch a glimpse of the tattered tails of his overcoat slipping out the door. I stand to follow, but a hand on my shoulder stops me. It's Brian. Got a minute? He asks. I look toward the back door, then offer Brian a friendly smile and a small white lie. 
Sure, but I've got this nagging feeling that I left my headlights on. I'm just going to go run and check. Sure, sure, he says, and takes his hand away. I nod clumsily and wind my way through the group to the door Harold left by. Outside, I scan the parking lot, looking for any of the cars that have their lights on or are starting their engines. It occurs to me that I don't even know if Harold even has a car. I run to the corner and look down each street, first one direction, then the next. I spot him in the halo of a dim street lamp, a half a block away, and jog toward him. He hears my footsteps and turns. At first, he seems alarmed, but not afraid, more wary, as if daring trouble to find him, poised almost like a predator. When he sees it's me, his stance relaxes to that of a harmless old man. He waits for me to catch up, and I slow to a walk. Harold, Mr. Finn, I begin without any clear idea of what I want to say to him. I look to him for some help hoping that he'll say out loud what he was trying to silently convey to me back in the meeting room. But there's only an inquisitive look. Is there something you wanted to say to me? I ask. He stares at me, blankly. I just got the feeling that you were trying to tell me something, and I don't know what it is. He nods. I sigh, exasperated. See, that's the thing. Why did you just nod? Are you telling me there is something you want to tell me? Or confirming that I don't know what it is? Or do you just nod at random moments? He lowers his head, then turns to walk away. I head him off. No, no, you can't just walk away from me. I know about you. I know who you were and what happened to your son and his family. What is it? What do you want to say? He looks at me with an air of compassion this time. For a moment I think he's on the verge of tears. But instead he takes a deep breath, then swallows, as if he's fighting back words trying to push their way out of him. Then he stands a bit taller and reaches out and puts a firm hand on my shoulder. The frailty is gone from his face. There is an intensity behind his eyes that frightens me. It reminds me of Mikey Manzanetti. It reminds me of the killer I sometimes see in the mirror. Look, kid, you know how it is with this group. We all can say to each other, I know how you feel and mean it. You and me more than any of them. He knows. You say you know me. You say you know my story. I believe you know part of it, and have guessed more of it. But I promise, you don't know it all. He pauses, gathering his thoughts. Their names, they stay with you, the people you lose, the people you... The people you kill, I think. He nods. I've killed more people than I can count. Men, women, rich, poor, people in the prime of their lives, and some already on their deathbeds. I remember all their faces. They haunt me, he adds, then looks around him as if staring down unseen apparitions. All of them, all the time. Then he looks back at me. But it's not too late for you. Too late for what? His grip on my shoulder softens, and he pats it in a slow rhythm like a feeble heartbeat. You have so much life left, he says. You've done enough. You can stop now. He lets go. Then his posture droops again, and the light behind his eyes dims as he turns and walks away. I watch him go, giving in to the futility of my quest for any further understanding. His final cryptic words hang in front of me. A black SUV creeps along the street across from me. I recognize it as the one Vitaly's goons used to follow me to the movie theater. I stop and stare at the faces hidden behind tinted windows. It doesn't move. I continue back toward the meeting, and they follow me. 
I stop once more, take a breath, then walk into the street straight toward the SUV. Its engine revs, and it races away with a brief squeal of rubber and a quickly dissipating cloud of engine exhaust. I put my hands in my pockets to keep them from shaking, but that just inflames their unhealed wounds and sends lightning bolts of pains up my arms. I realized that I was hoping there would be a confrontation, that something would occur to stop the runaway train I find myself on. But it seems there was no other course but onward. Despite my own misgivings, despite Old Harold's cryptic warnings, and despite common sense. I walk back to the meeting, thinking up a second white lie to tell Brian as to why it took so long to check my headlights. But by the time I get back, the meeting has broken up, and Brian is gone. 25. Figure it out, Rebecca demands. She hasn't taken my latest attempt to call off killing Justin Berman very well. I shake my head. Look, we don't know when exactly he's going to be at his hideout, and if we did, we'd have Vitaly's men on our tail. We can't do it, at least not now. We have to lie low. For how long? she asks. A few months, I tell her. A year at the most. She slams her hands down on the living room table, then stands and turns her back to me. There's too much that can go wrong. We have to wait for Manzanetti to back off. She faces me, a determined look in her eyes. So you think we should allow Justin Berman to go on with the farce he's perpetrating? Let him marry Dawn McAllister? Sleep in her bed while he fucks drug whores on the side? Rebecca, is that what we've become? We can't be responsible. We are responsible. Once we found out that he's a monster, that he always has been, how can we let him? It's Vitaly all over again. I shrug. I know it's hard, but there's nothing we can do right now without risking ourselves. If you knew how hard it was, you would be coming up with a way to make it work, not excuses. They're not excuses, they're reasons, and good ones. We can't wait. I stand to make my point once more. We have to. There's no way we can. I'm pregnant. I fall back into the dining room chair behind me, the room spinning as I process a revelation. I almost forget to breathe. Pregnant? Am I happy? Mad? How am I supposed to feel? Well, she asks, don't you have anything to say? I say something, you idiot. That's fantastic. She raises her eyebrows at me in the way that means I should reconsider what I just said and come up with something better. It's just unexpected. In a good way, I mean. A baby. I smile, but I know she sees the fear behind it. How do you feel about it? She shrugs and sits back down. I'm keeping it. Of course. I've been thinking about it ever since. She doesn't need to say the name. She doesn't need to say Nick. I know exactly what she means. I reach out for her hand. We've done what we started out to do. We've done more than we ever meant to. And now, now we have a chance to start over. What, like he never existed? No, no, I just meant... I thought my life was over. That there was no reason to go on. And now... She takes my outstretched hand into hers. And now we have that reason. Right. She lets go, closes her eyes and takes a deep breath. It just doesn't feel right. How can we bring a child into the world where people like Justin Berman get to do whatever they want, take advantage of whomever they want, destroy lives and keep on living themselves? If you want this, if you want our child and a life with me, there's only one way we can do it. We have to finish this. It is finished. No. She sits back, fierce determination on her face. 
I realized that if the mere possibility of being with her again was enough for me before, the prospect of being a father again, of having that unconditional love in my life once more. How? I ask. We can find a way, she insists. She puts a hand to her belly, and I nod. 26. I come in early to the office so that I can clear out the day's work and make sure that the recovery from my deployment screw-up is on track. Then I hide myself in the server room and spin up my virtual terminal. I start by looking up everything I can find on the McAllister Foundation, particularly the outreach programs featuring Justin Berman. There are videos on the website of his presentations. There are touching testimonials of people whose lives he turned around. There is a schedule of upcoming events. I scroll through the dates and locations, noting a series of local high school programs next week featuring Berman. He will be in town. And chances are that that means he'll want to escape the hypocrisy of his life by filling his veins or nostrils with whatever drugs he can buy with his fiancé's money and, as Rebecca eloquently put it, fuck some drug whores. But when? Does he ever spend the night there? Right about this time, I regret having destroyed the surveillance cameras we used to track Anthony Vitale's comings and goings. But then I realized that with him, we were spying on someone who followed a schedule, someone who had a regular Saturday night routine. Getting video on Berman would be an exercise in futility. I wouldn't learn anything about him. He was all over the place. He traveled, a lot. And his little hideaway was a situation of opportunity, not a lifestyle. I had no idea how he got there, how long he stayed, how often he brought someone with him. My initial plan was based on being able to watch his place in person. But with Vitaly's goons on my tail, that would be next to impossible. I start looking into cellular-based GPS tracking devices, like the one we planted on Vitaly, but with live tracking. But then I realized a simple ride in an Uber could circumvent that. Got kids? A voice asks me. I look up, startled to see the smiling face of a short, squat, blonde man peeking at my screen. Um, can I help you? I say, as I check my screen for anything incriminating or inappropriate. The only thing visible are the search results for GPS trackers. Oh, sorry, we haven't been introduced. Sam West. He extends his hand, and I automatically shake it. I just started this week. It's been kind of crazy. Yeah, I say, and raise a hand, singling myself out. That would be because of me. I heard. This isn't the best way to tell you, but I'm your new boss. Oh, the realization sinks in. Of course, Roger needed to fill the spot that I was supposed to take. I guess I'm grateful he didn't hire Don McAllister. Congratulations, I offer. Yeah, awkward. I know you're supposed to get the job. I'm just grateful for the opportunity to make things right. I indicate the screen. Sorry about the non-work activity. I'm just, ah, don't worry about it, he says reassuringly. As long as you get the work done, I think it's perfectly all right. It's all about balance. Just as long as it's nothing NSFW, or, you know, selling trade secrets to the competition. I laugh along with Sam. No, nothing like that. I quickly think of a reason why I would be looking at GPS tracking gadgets. My wife, well, my ex-wife, but we're working it out. She's in real estate. She never takes a mileage deduction because she can't be bothered with filling out the IRS-compliant logs, so I thought, smart, he says. I got this thing that plugs into the onboard diagnostics port. Does the GPS thing with a phone, but also tracks hard accelerations and hard braking. I have a teenager, just starting to drive. He hates it. He tells me he gets graded at school all day long. He doesn't want to be graded while he's hanging out with his friends. But that's the price of being a new driver in the digital age. Yeah, 
My parents would have had a whole different opinion of me if they could have tracked all the things I did when I was in high school. You and me both, he laughs again. Well, just wanted to say hi and thanks for everything you're doing. I'm glad you're sticking around. Well, I'm sorry you had to start off in the middle of a shitstorm like this. He ignores my self-deprecating apology. Listen, when things settle down, let's do lunch. I'm sure you have a lot of ideas for what we should be doing better or differently around here. Sure. He smacks me on the arm. I'll send you a link for that thing I got from my son. I'm pretty sure they have a business mileage logging feature, too. Thanks. He nods, then winds his way back out of the server room. I can't help thinking it should have been me on his end of that conversation. But that path is gone. And I wonder how long I can remain on this new one. 27. I suddenly point out the black SUV parked across the street. Eddie squints into the afternoon sun as he sits in what I'm coming to think of as our booth in the diner down the street from my apartment. They're still following you? Since the bowling alley, these are different guys. Do you recognize them? The windows are rolled down on the SUV. Eddie takes another look. The driver I know, Freddy Federico. The other guy? I need a better look. Are they waiting to, you know? I leave the question hanging, hoping Eddie gets my drift without my broadcasting it to any curious passers-by. Kill you? Eddie shakes his head. They were, you wouldn't see them coming. No, this is just a message. What's the message? I ask. Eddie points his thumb in the direction of the SUV. They're watching you. Oh, thanks. I never would have figured that out without your keen insight into the world of organized crime, I respond sarcastically. He raises his hands in a mock defensive gesture. Hey, I don't pretend to know everything about how these guys think. Best guess, I counter. Mm, well, maybe they're trying to frighten you. Jeez, it's working. You could go back to the police. That's all I need. That's all I need. Cops keeping an eye out for me while the mob shakes me down while I'm trying to plan an impossible murder, I think to myself. What could they do? Well, it's just a thought. What else is there? I'm thinking trying to find Vitaly and asking him would be difficult. Eddie scratches his head. Well, I could think of a few places you could go to find him, but you're not going to be able to talk to him unless he wants to talk to you. And if he wants to talk to you, well, you know how that goes. I nod. So, the only way to figure out what is going on is to just let it play out. Wait for the other shoe to drop, Eddie says. I don't even know exactly why the first shoe dropped. He shrugs. The waitress rings his pie and tops off our coffees. Eddie stirs in an excessive amount of sugar and starts poking at his pie. Listen, he says. I wanted to apologize again for the thing with the group. I let his apology hang in the air for a while. It was still a bit of a sore subject, one I discover I have not completely let go of. I crossed the line, I know that. Sometimes I forget that there are real people behind the words of a story. It's okay, I reassure him. I understand. Well, I don't completely, but I'm willing to try to get past it. Thanks. I only bring it up because of Harry Finn. Old Harold, I ask, my curiosity now piqued. Yeah, I did some more digging around him. What did you find? I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think he's the one. The one what? The one killing the child killers. I raise my eyebrows in surprise. Doesn't this guy let go of anything? Look, I know you can write off some of the deaths to coincidence, but there is a pattern. Almost every July, starting a few years after Finn's family was killed, there's been a death. Okay, at least he's narrowing his suspicions away from the murders that can be traced to me. That's kind of thin, I suggest. He sighs, almost despondent. 
You're right, but there's something about it. And now that I add a retired mob hitman to the mix, the anniversary of his son's death, the profile of the victims, you want my honest opinion? Of course. Suddenly, some of the things that old Harold said to me on the street make sense. Is that what he was getting at? He knew what I was doing because... Because that's what he was doing, too? Sounds like you're reaching, I say to him. Sounds like you want that bestseller. Eddie taps the table with his fingers for a moment, thinking. Well, it's a good story. And there's something about it. My gut is telling me there's something there. My gut is telling me it wants some pie, I say, hoping to change the subject. And we both dig into generous slices of French silk. 28. I check the mailbox when I get home, but it's empty. Rebecca must be back from work already. I climb the stairs and walk down the hall to the apartment. I've been practicing what I'm going to say to her for the last couple of days. All of my research, the constant watchfulness of Vitaly's men, and now Eddie Horn's relentless journalistic intuition. There's no way we can pull this off. There's just no way I can think of that we can find out when Berman is going to be at his secret place. Anything I can think of to shake the mob goons would make it nearly impossible to get in and out of there successfully, considering my last encounter with the locals. She's got to see that. She has to understand that this is not the right time. We have to walk away from this one. We can tip off McAllister about the drugs, derail his plans to marry Don, maybe even get him arrested. That would be enough, wouldn't it? Take away the nice, comfortable life he's conned his way into. She has to see it's the only thing that makes sense. I enter the apartment. The living room is empty. Rebecca, you home? In the dining room, she says. I turn the corner and see her sitting at the table with Amy. I smile a greeting to Amy, who clearly has a pregnancy glow about her, even though she's barely showing. I had an idea, Rebecca says. I see, I respond, nodding hello to Amy. Hi, Amy says back. Sit, Rebecca invites. I round the table and sit across from Rebecca and Amy. You told her, I say. Rebecca nods and smiles. So, is that your idea? We get a single soon-to-be mother involved as an accessory to murder? Just listen, she says. I was thinking about what you've been saying, how it would be difficult to find out when Justin is going to be at his apartment, how we avoid the guys in the black SUV, how we get away with it all so that we're around to raise our baby. It's not possible, Rebecca. I've been trying, honest I have, but there's just no way. Not now, at least. But there is, she insists. I shake my head. Even with Amy, there's just no way we can't. There's a knock at the door. Rebecca starts to rise from her chair. I'll get it, I say, and get up myself and head for the door. I press my eye against the peephole. There's a couple outside our door. Familiar faces. It's Tina and Larry, Jeremy's parents. I stand back from the door. Rebecca walks past me, shoots me a reproachful stare, then opens the door. Come on in, she says. They walk inside and Rebecca closes the door behind them. She escorts them to the dining room. Hi, Tina, Larry, Amy says. Oh my goodness, Tina exclaims. Look at you. When is your due date? End of October, Amy answers. I pull Rebecca aside. What's going on? You're right. We can't do this with just Amy's help. You told them to? Yes, of course I did. We need them. She slips out of my grasp and goes into the dining room. Can I get you anything? She asks our newly arrived guests. Coffee? Wine? I think I have some beer. I'll take a beer, Larry replies. Make it two, Tina adds. I'm frozen. 
I feel naked and exposed. What did she tell them? What do they know? Can you give me a hand? Rebecca asks me as she crosses to the kitchen. I follow, and once we're out of view, whisper into her hair. What are they doing here? Helping, of course, she answers. There's another knock at the door. I'll get it, Amy shouts from the other room. Rebecca grabs a couple of beers from the refrigerator, hands them to me along with a bottle opener from a drawer, then picks out a couple ginger ales from the fridge before closing it. Come on, they're waiting. I follow her back into the dining room, where Amy is orchestrating a reunion with our two newest guests, Ewell and Wendy, Erica's parents. When I walk into the room, they all fall silent. Rebecca walks past me, hands one of the ginger ales to Amy, then takes the beers from me and hands them to Tina and Larry. Well, everyone, we're almost all here. Almost? Larry stands up. He crosses to me and grabs my hand, pumps it firmly. I wince as my palm is still rather tender. Sorry, he says. Tina and I, we don't have the words to tell you how much what you did made a difference in our lives. Wendy takes a step toward me, starts to say something, but then takes another step and throws her arms around me. I can feel her tears running down my neck. Yule pats me on the shoulder. I had nothing to do with Lorenzo's killing, but obviously Rebecca gave me credit for relieving their agony as well. Rebecca steps up between Yule and Wendy. I'm glad you could come. Anything you need, Yule asks. Just ask. I step back. This is too much. This is wrong. Do you people understand what we've done? What we plan to do? Of course they do, Rebecca answers. I look to her, then to all the faces in the room. They aren't the same faces I saw at the support group. These aren't just grieving parents. There's another aspect to their presence, a purpose that has managed to ensnare them into its dark clutches. Do they know who they are now? This is the real Dead Kids Club. There's another knock. I sigh, weary. Who is it now? I sink into a chair and bow my head, afraid to see who it is. Who else Rebecca has sucked into our conspiracy? Hello, everyone. Sorry we're late, a familiar voice says. I feel a hand squeeze my shoulder and look up to find Brian's eyes smiling down at me. We're late? Rebecca ushers our final guest of the evening into the dining room. Everyone makes way for her. Larry pulls out a chair at the head of the table, and Barbara Brown takes her seat. The meeting can now come to order. 29. Rebecca brings in a couple folding chairs from the living room closet to accommodate everyone at the table. They all look to me, even Barb. Brian is the first one to speak. Rebecca told us you didn't know we were coming, that this would be a surprise to you, but I want you to know it wasn't a surprise to us when she told us what you two have been doing. I think we all knew, in the backs of our minds, deep in our hearts, that all the people who took our children didn't just happen to die. But we also didn't want to ask any questions. When a prayer gets answered, you don't ask God why. You just say thank you. Thank you, says Amy. The rest of them join in the chorus. Thank you. Rebecca takes my hand. I look over to her. She's smiling. I shake my head. You should all go home. Forget about this. You shouldn't be involved. You shouldn't have to bear this alone, Wendy replies. We all owe you so much. Is it true? Barb asks. All eyes turn to her. Barb's usual veneer of compassion and forgiveness has given way to an intensity I've never seen in her before, even when she was upset when things slipped out of her control at group. 
Is Justin Berman the monster who Rebecca says he is? Has all of it been a lie? There's no point in keeping anything in anymore. I nod. I saw it myself. He was unfaithful to his fiancée. He does drugs. He has an apartment he keeps secret from her, where I found more drugs and evidence of habitual infidelities. His community outreach is a farce. He's not who he pretends to be. There is no remorse, no repentance, no redeemable aspects to his character whatsoever. He's as close to evil as I've ever seen, I conclude. Then she pauses before going on, determination setting into her face. Then we want to help. I stand to speak to all of them. Look, I know how all of you feel. I know. But it's not possible. There are too many things that can go wrong. And with more people involved, I can't ask any of you. You don't have to ask, Brian interrupts. Just tell us what you need. I look at them, at their eager faces staring back at me, waiting for me to tell them what to do. How they can help me kill a man. And Barb, Barb, how could the woman who preached forgiveness and acceptance for all those years, how could she be here? How could she be a part of this? And while my mind tries to reconcile the Browns' involvements, how Rebecca managed to persuade them to help us do the one thing they had worked so hard to remove the need from us to do, I was also pulling together elements of a new plan. A way to actually pull this off. We aren't just two anymore. There are nine. Nine people. Nine sets of eyes and ears. Nine ways things can go wrong. Rebecca squeezes my hand and my doubts and fears evaporate. All right, I say with a tone of acceptance. If we're going to do this, there are a couple rules. One, we come up with a plan and follow it exactly. And two, if anything goes wrong, if anyone is compromised, we walk away from it. This only works if we can get away with it. I see a smile on Rebecca's face. This is what she wanted. The part of me that was capable of planning a murder. I sit back down in my chair. Listen carefully, I begin. We don't write anything down. Tomorrow, I want all of you to go individually to the first place you can think of that sells those pay-as-you-go phones. Get the smart kind with the touchscreens. You pay cash and bring them to me. I'll activate them under false names and emails, and then I'll bring you back a phone other than the one you bought. Everyone nods. It's a bit of a risk to have everything go through me, but that's the only way I can think of to make sure it gets done correctly and securely. I'll load them up with an app so we can chat with each other, one where the messages self-destruct after they're read. It will be completely anonymous and untraceable, but we'll still use code words in all our communications. We only communicate via the app, no phone-to-phone -phone calls, unless it's a call you would make amongst yourselves normally on your own lines. Keep your regular routine as much as you can. I can see the intense concentration of everyone in the room. Their keen attention is focused on me. No one is interrupting with questions or making their own suggestions. More and more, I'm convincing myself that this can actually work. As I see it, I explain, there are three major obstacles we need to overcome. One, we need to find out when Berman is heading toward his drug pad. I know he's going to be local next week. He has several high school outreach dates scheduled, so we should be able to keep track of him and determine when he's heading in the direction of his hideaway. Two, I, and likely Rebecca as well, have a tail. Some guys who seem to be intent on following us. They are connected to some local mob figures, so if that bothers anyone to cross their paths, no one speaks up. No one even betrays any indication of hesitation or reconsideration. I continue. And three, we need airtight alibis and an escape plan for me.
For us, Rebecca interjects, I'm doing this with you, just like the others. From past experience, I know this is an argument I cannot win, so I nod. For us, this is what I'm thinking. And for the next hour and twenty minutes, I explain to my attentive pupils exactly how we're going to kill Justin Berman. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanddae.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.